Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. A few days ago, one of my daughters asked me why, if we are already forgiven, do we have to confess our sins to God? That question challenged my understanding of confession, and I wondered, are we as a church thinking about confession rightly? Are we coming to this portion of the Lord's service with the proper understanding of confession? This morning's proverb clearly teaches that confession of sins is the beginning of forsaking them, which is repentance. And these, confession and repentance, are linked to mercy. In 1 John 1.9, we see a similar connection between confession and mercy. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession of sin, then, is what binds us to God's mercy through Jesus Christ. It is an act of faith, in his atoning sacrifice. The Greek word for confess in 1 John 1, 9 is homologeo, which means to agree with or to assent to. So when we confess our sins, we are stating our agreement with God's view of the sin that we are confessing, that it is certainly transgression and wickedness and is something that should be forsaken. Confession is also agreement that our sin would justly bring us God's condemnation were it not for his redemptive work on the cross. Confession of sin is also restorative. It restores our minds to right thinking about sin and restores our souls to right fellowship with God. It reestablishes us in the assurance of our salvation, that we are indeed forgiven, that we have a mediator who is always interceding for us, always imputing his righteousness to us. Confession of sin glorifies God, and to glorify him is what we should all be pursuing. Confession glorifies him because it proclaims his lordship over our lives, his power over death and hell, and proclaims his gospel that because Jesus died and rose again, we can be forgiven. Also, the passages we have read, Proverbs 28.13 and 1 John 1.9, indicate that God requires confession of sins. Thus, confession is obedience to him, and to obey him is a way that we glorify him. What a privilege it is, then, to confess our sin. Not just here once a week in corporate confession, but daily, even hourly. No sin is too little to confess. No sin is too big to bring before the mercy seat of God. Let us then be always confessing, always repenting. Let us be careful to never cover our sins, to never minimize them, justify them, or make excuses for them. Jesus paid too great a price for us to neglect such a gift as confession. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins together to God. Pleasure to be back here. I'm going to do something kind of interesting today. I'm going to talk a lot about the heart today. 
I'm not really talking about the heart as in like Valentine's Day or like those, uh, you know, a Hallmark Channel sort of heart or those goofy little candy messages that you give out on Valentine's Day. Uh, not even the source. The heart is the source of passion or desire or emotion. I'm going to talk about the heart in a very different way here. But I'd like to read at least the, the main thrust of the verse that we're going to be discussing today. And I will give you a little bit more into Joel. Joel is actually one of my favorite Old Testament uh, books. And I'm going to read the verse here, and I'll tell you a little bit more about Joel in just a second. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that your words would be spoken here today, Lord, and that if I say something amiss, it would come to nothing. If I miss something, you would bring it up nevertheless through your Holy Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active and help us to understand with perspicacity what is being said to each and every one of us here today. For you speak to us individually and corporately at the same time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, I'm going to be talking about the heart today, but I'm going to have a little bit more to say about that and what that means for us. But I think it would be helpful to go through uh, a little bit and give a little context for the book of Joel here. I know that everybody knows Joel like the back of their hand, but uh, not everybody does. I'm just kidding. But uh, one thing, it, it's obviously Joel it sits in the minor prophets, and the minor prophets are an area that is uh, largely neglected by the Christian church, but it's a very important thing. It's one, the minor prophets are uh, more often quoted in the New Testament than the Old Testament prophets, uh, just because they're short books is why they're called minor prophets, but they are they have a major impact on who Jesus is, and even a lot of them even figuring out uh, a lot of who Jesus, uh, a lot of the prophecies that prophesied of Jesus' coming are in the uh, minor prophets. Uh, so if you get to the New Testament, just turn left a little bit, and it's right there. If you're over in Daniel, you have to turn right a little bit, and there, right in the middle of there, uh, you have all the minor prophets. Well, Joel is the second one, at least chronologically, or not chronologically, in the Bible, Chronologically, the minor prophets are all over the place. Just to give a little context for the book of Joel, we don't know exactly when Joel happened. We don't have to know, but scholars are trying to, they always try and pin down everything that they can about things. We don't know exactly when it happened because there aren't enough markers. There are enough markers in there to let us know it's somewhere between about, let's say, 800 and 500 BC, just to give you a general time frame of when it is. Um, we do know a few things, though. It's obvious, obviously, Joel is clearly uh, talking to God's covenantal people. It's very clear in that. So whether that be Israel or Judea, uh, it's, or Judah, excuse me, it's kind of hard to tell. And one of the other things we see in here is clearly a, a uh, theme that we see throughout the Old Testament is a summary to repent. We see that it clearly in the verses we read there, but also to give you an idea of the overview of Joel. One of the things in the first chapter of Joel, he's talking about these locusts, and the locusts have come, and they, they've basically eaten everything. Now, some people try and decide whether or not they were actually locusts, or whether or not he's comparing the locusts, and he's actually talking about an army coming like locusts. It's hard to tell, but the point is, is that they have lost everything. Everything that they had, all their future, it's gone. 
the, the food has been devastated. They're in hunger. They, the, even the, the cattle, they don't have enough to eat. They, don't, they have nothing left. And so they are, they are greatly distraught over the situation of their country, a uh, situation over them personally. But God has something specifically to say to them to try and get them to wake up a little bit more from what they're going on. They can see actively God's judgment coming down on them. But let me tell you also a little bit about, in our text, we talked about rend your heart and not your garments. I think it's important. Last time I was here, I talked about rendering an image. And today I'm talking about rending. So that's a little bit different. I didn't even mean to do that. But rending means to tear. If like if I had a, a big piece of cloth, which I meant to bring with me, but, and you took it and you tore it, that would be rending or tearing the garment apart. Well, one of the things that they did during that day, you read a lot in the Old Testament about sackcloth and ashes. That was the kind of, the, they would get down on their knees and they'd take the sackcloth and they'd be in sackcloth, which would really be something that would really hurt. And they'd take the ashes and put, it was symbolic of them wishing that they were dead. Uh, and so those sorts of, the rending of the garments was kind of a traditional way to show your, how distraught, how uh, grieved you were over your situation. Uh, garments weren't easy to come by. They didn't have any Walmarts in those days, so you couldn't just go over and buy something. They had to be made, and they were very valuable. So the tearing of something very valuable, they would usually take this and just tear it apart and look up to the heavens, and it was supposed to show their level of grief. So that gives you a little bit of idea of what's going on. So the tearing of their clothes was basically a way that they would show their grief. Along with that, they would also a lot of times fast and pray They would weep. They would mourn. And we see a lot of that in the book of Joel here. But what we see clearly in here, God speaking to them, is he's talking about this tearing of their their clothes. And he's not saying that that's a bad thing. He's not saying, don't go home and think you can never tear clothes or something like that. He's not saying that's a bad thing. What he's saying is that's not enough. What he was saying is as helpful as these outward signs are, there's supposed to be an outward sign of an inward reality. We talk about that with baptism. I don't know if you guys talk about it, but it's an outward sign of an inward reality. But what he's saying is you got the outward signs. You're weeping, you're gnashing your teeth, you're doing all these things, but is there the inward reality that's really going on? He's saying, rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't just tear your clothes. Tear yourself. Be broken-hearted, so to speak. He doesn't just want empty words. He wants heartfelt prayers. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about repentance and what true repentance is. True repentance is not just saying you're sorry. True repentance is unreserved, sold out, through and through, unqualified, complete repentance. This is often indicated in the biblical text as wholehearted, the whole of your heart, not just part of it. You think about, uh, you know, when you hear a child, I, I, I have three children, and so there's been many times when you get one of the kids and you say, you need to apologize to your brother. And so you hear this, like, sorry. And you're like, uh, I'm not sure that's really quite what I meant. I mean, you had to apologize, not just you had to speak the words. You have to actually mean the words as, at least as much as you can to try and understand why you're sorry. So just in a a similar sort of way, God is saying, you know what, just saying you're sorry or just saying that you are distraught over your situation, fine, that's a first step. But the next step is to actually be sorry, to actually change. True repentance is wholehearted. It's sincere and thoroughgoing. It's all you have and all you ever will be. 
And one way we talk about repentance, and we see this a lot very clearly in the New Testament because of the words that are used there, but even in the Old Testament, it's the same sort of thing. It's as if you were walking away in one direction, and repentance is turning around and going the other direction. It's not just stopping. It's saying, turn around, be sorry, and start to mend your ways. Become a new person of how you're... So if repentance is the, going the opposite way of which you were headed. Focus on something else. Focus on, in this case, God's will and what God desires rather than, rather than your own will. So the, he's saying the garment ripping is a start, but rend your hearts, not just your garments, you might want to say. What's another way to think of that? Rend your hearts, not just your words. Rend your hearts, not just your talents. Rend your hearts, not just your time. Rend your hearts, not just your wallet. Or any sort of other sacrifice. He wants you. There's a story of a hermit who basically gave up everything he, he, he had. And he went way out into the wilderness and was alone in a cave. And he still heard the Lord speaking to him that he wasn't blessed. And he said, Lord, why am I not blessed? I've given you everything. And he said, you kept one thing. You kept yourself. You kept your own heart. That's all I really wanted in the first place. So we can give up a lot of these things. I'm not saying that it isn't good to sacrifice. It isn't good to give up our time or our talents or our money or anything like that. That's a good thing. But if that's what you're doing in place of giving yourself, it really isn't worth all that much. Okay. So here's an interesting question to think about. Why does God want us to wholeheartedly repent? It's very easy to kind of gloss over that. Why does God want us to wholeheartedly repent? Well, I think one thing that's intriguing to think about this is him wanting us to wholeheartedly repent tells us very much about who God is, about who his character is. And you can find this answer a little bit, at least, if you read in the second part of verse 13. It says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So it's saying there's a reason why you're repenting, not just because you're, you ought to do it, but you ought to do it because you know who God is. Because God is one who is slow to anger. He is one who relents of calamity. He's, he's gracious. He's abounding in love. He has all these characters. You know this about God, so how could you not turn back to him knowing all those things? So he wants us to wholeheartedly and unreservedly repent, not because he just wants to have that done, but because of his character. And he knows that about himself, and he says, look, it's in your best interest. He's saying this through Joel. It's in your best interest to repent of what you've done so that I can bring along the blessing that, you, that I want to give you, not that you deserve. So don't miss this. There's an interesting aspect in here. Joel paints a picture in here, and I'm only picking on a few verses, but if you look to the whole book of Joel, which is all three chapters, it's not that long. But if you look at that, God, or excuse me, Joel is painting a picture that God is dying to forgive us. He's dying to forgive us. He longs to forgive us. He doesn't give us a, a prescription for how to go about doing this, but a plea to, to uh, repent. It's not a recipe, but a remedy. 
And this is what the Lord is saying through Joel and declaring through Joel to his covenant people. You know, thank God quite literally that he's not a three strikes and you're out sort of God. If there's nothing else that you can't learn from going through everything in in the Old Testament, especially run through the book of Judges and some other books like this, is you see that God is faithful even when Israel is not. There's a covenant, there's a bargain that goes on between a covenant people and you have one side and the other side. And if the one side breaks it, the other side does not have to keep it. And yet, when Israel over and over and over and over and over breaks it, God continues to call for repentance and says, I want to gather you together. I want to forgive you. So that's why I say that God is dying to forgive us. You think of the, the story of, of the prodigal son in Luke. And, and I won't go through that whole thing, but there's this idea that, that there's a prodigal son and that there's a father that wants to lavish blessings and forgiveness on us if we just return to him. He'd run to his child with no question of his forgiveness. His son is home. He wants to forgive him. So do you see what's going on? Do we, do we really understand the God of the universe, the one who made everything, is dying to forgive us, a little inconsequential little piece of the universe. But he's dying to forgive us if we, his people, would just return to him wholeheartedly. For the starving, there would be a banquet. For the barren and the desolate, there would be abundance. For the parched, there would be refreshment. For the fearful, there would be comfort. For the exposed, there would be covering. So, in the book of Joel, the locusts left nothing. There was nothing left there. But yet God says, return to me, and I will lavish blessings upon you. I will relent to a repentant people. He's dying to give us life. He's chomping at the bit, you can think of, to forgive us. Longing to bless us. Because of who we are? No. Because of who he is. This reminds us, of course, like the cross. Where Christ showed up and showed us how much our triune God was dying to forgive us. How much he was dying to bless us by dying on a cross. So that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God once for all. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. So we see in Joel that God wanted his people to be reconciled to himself just as he wants us to be reconciled to him as a new covenant people even now and even today. So here's a question for us. Are we as desperate to be reconciled as God is to have us reconciled? Are we as desperate to reconcile ourselves to God as God is to reconcile us to him? Are we willing to rend or to tear our hearts? Are we willing to give it up all as lost? Are we eager, almost impatient, to seek him wholeheartedly? And that's a question we all must ask ourselves. (coughs) Evidently, I'm the parched that needs refreshment here. I'm used to a mic, so I have to speak louder. Sorry about that. So if we do want to be reconciled to God, if we do want to be forgiven, and we do want to be blessed by Him, are we desperately seeking to be reconciled to Him? Are we good? Are we just good? Are we, are we good with where we're at? 
Because if you're good with where you're at, God's saying you don't know where you're at. If you're good with where you're at, you don't know where you're at. Because God knows. And you know what? The deeper we dig into understanding the true nature of man, the true nature of sin, the true nature of who we are, and the deeper we dig into the true nature of God and who God is, the more we understand the divide between the two and how desperate our situation. And if we understand that, then we understand what the uh, covenant people understood back then when they had nothing. They had, the locusts had taken everything. They had nothing left. They could see visually around them palpably that we have nothing. We have to turn to God if we really truly understand. And it's difficult in an, in an area of abundance. Yes, we are blessed and we have abundance around us, but that can sometimes blind us to the desperate need that our soul has for God. If we can really understand that we need to be reconciled to Him, then only then can we understand and follow what the Lord is saying to His people here and also saying to us. Only then can we truly repent and return to God so that He can reestablish what was lost. We can receive the full blessing that is in knowing the Lord Christ Jesus. So we can deeply reconcile ourselves to our God, a God who is dying to forgive and bless us. So just kind of wrap this up. We saw the willingness and the eagerness that dying on the cross, our God would have for us. That eagerness to forgive us, to reconcile us to him. He was willing to go to those great lengths. In fact, even, the, even his mere coming to earth to be one of us was an immense gift. God wants us to wholeheartedly repent and return to him because he can't wait to lavish forgiveness on his people. The question remains, though, are we willing? Are we willing to wholeheartedly repent and turn to God? Just imagine for a second what it would be like. Forget forget all the people. Just if God's people, the people that know God, wholeheartedly repented and returned to God, what would this world be like? What would our lives be like? So the question for us individually is, are we willing to wholeheartedly repent and turn to God, to tear our heart as if we were tearing a garment and give it as broken people over to the Lord? If so, God is ever poised, he's ever ready to forgive us if we would only give over our hearts. It's easy to be distressed with the depravity of man, the condition of our current culture, and the condition of the church. We are clearly fallen, and the church is in a dreadful way as well. We do have sin that needs to be confessed. But we miss the whole point of Scripture if we do not see the promises that it has for us. One of the promises is that after the passion of the Lord Jesus and after his resurrection, he will look at the fruit of his cross and be satisfied with it. From the prophet Isaiah, and this is speaking of uh, Messiah, the Messiah in 53, he says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, we see Christ's satisfaction. He is not ashamed to sit at the table with us. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is not ashamed of our manners, even at this table. As we learn this, we grasp what free grace really is and what it means. This sets us free to learn our table manners as well. This table, this communion, is not a reward that we get for being worthy. It is a means of grace. It's one of the means that God has ordained to make us worthy. We eat and we are nourished. We are not to strive to grow to be healthy and strong and then seek food as a reward. We are weak. We are trembling in need of what he gives to us. But please know that he is not ashamed to give it either. He is satisfied with the table he has set for us. And because he is satisfied, it is possible for us to eat and be satisfied from it as well. So come, welcome to the table of Christ. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.